It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. on Thursday, May 25th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, national health leaders say social media can have negative effects on children. Then a lawsuit is dropped challenging Mississippi's inclusion of Ngabwe Trust on license plates. Plus, an institute that has improved reading scores in the state is sunsetting after 20 years. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The U.S. Surgeon General has issued a public advisory warning of the risks social media can pose to young people. He's calling on tech companies, lawmakers, and parents to take urgent action to safeguard them against these harms. Our Will Stribling speaks with Josh Golan, executive director at the Internet safety nonprofit called Fair Play. He says the report has a real chance to spark change. I think this is an incredibly important um, report for a few reasons. Um, First of all, um, I think the evidence is very clear on the ways that social media is harming young people and their mental health. Um, But, um, you know, one of the strategies that uh, big tech uses is they try and cast doubt on the evidence. And so having um, the preeminent um, uh, medical um, expert in the country state very clearly what the evidence is and, and that there is overwhelming evidence that social media is, can be harmful is really important. Um, it's also important that, um, you know, he acknowledges that there are things that we don't know yet about the effects of social media, but that we cannot wait any longer in order to take action um, and that it should be the, the duty should, uh, or the burden should be on social media companies to prove that their products are safe for children rather than the other way around. And I think that that's really important. Um, and then the other thing that I think is really important from this report is that he states clearly that parents cannot do this alone, um, that we need they need help from policymakers. They need help from the tech companies themselves, that we need to change both uh, that we need to change our culture and how young people um, are so enmeshed in social media. And that's, you know, that culture change requires more than operating at one household at a time. So I think that this report really has a potential to be a game changer um, and pave the way for the types of regulation and changes that we need. What type of regulation do you think we need? 
the, the, the most important things is that we need privacy protections, expanded privacy protections for young people, including for teens. So right now, the only law that we have that protects children online is the Children's Online Privacy and Protection Act, which was written 25 years ago before we had smartphones or social media, and it only covers a child up until their 13th birthday. So we need an update to that law that, um, that uh, protects children in today's media environment, and that gives teens privacy protections for the first time. Um, you know, there's no other legal context where we treat a 13-year-old like an adult, but that's what we do online. And I think the other really important thing is that we need what's called safety by design legislation. So right now there's a bill in Congress that has big bipartisan support, the Kids Online Safety Act, that would create a duty of care for these companies to um, identify and prevent the worst harms to children that are happening a lot online from the way that these platforms are designed. Um, so if your design is causing kids to harm themselves or commit suicide or exacerbating eating disorders or even just leading to compulsive use, you would have a responsibility under this law to change how your platform is designed so that it's not so harmful to young people. That's the kind of regulation that we need, the Kids Online Safety Act, so that these companies have a responsibility to children and families and not just to their shareholders. In Mississippi, doctors are echoing the concerns raised by the Surgeon General. Suzanne Campiche is a licensed social worker at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and she says action will be needed by lawmakers and parents. I thought it was uh, interesting, and the you know some of the studies they cited were showing potential effects on um, the increasing risks of social media on children's mental health and how it can increase depression, anxiety, um, and lower self-esteem, and um, how it can affect kind of their brain development. Possibly, you know, there need to be more studies done. They said there's not a lot of evidence yet, but there's some evidence that it could, you know, affect um, how their brain responds to social uh, situations because the, you know, the developing brain in, in teens and how um, they're uh, just learning how to, you know, be social and how the critical thinking part of their brain isn't developed yet and how that can affect um, things. In your work, how often have you seen, you know, social media use having a, a detrimental effect on the health of the teen or adolescent? Yeah, I see it um, quite often, actually. I see kids in clinic up to age 18, and dif- depending on the child, they respond differently to different things they're seeing, but depending on how they're able to engage or um, what they see on social media can definitely affect them. You know, there's cyberbullying and... Um, there's different sources of information they're getting because, you know, just anybody can post on Instagram or Facebook and it doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily an expert on a topic. And so uh, kids, teens might see that and they might take it as face value as something that they should do or not do. And that um, not, you know, not having that part of their brain where they're critically thinking about what they're consuming yet can affect them. In the report, he noted that unfortunately, parents have had a disproportionate role here in like uh, monitoring their their children's social media use and making sure they're you know engaging with it in a healthy way 
what do you think some of the best practices are for for parents who are concerned about this? How do, uh, what are good guardrails to put in place, and and how do you have the, those conversations? Yeah, I think the um, first thing that all parents should do is model the behavior that you want to see. Um, so if you yourself or you know parent is on their phone twenty four seven and um, posting everything on social media, especially stuff about their child without regard to their privacy or autonomy, that can be challenging to, you know, if parents are saying, don't do as I do, um, but do what I say. And so think about how they're engaging with screens themselves can be kind of the first step. Another one is that um, the American Psychological Association does recommend that um, adults monitor their children's social media use. So you know, when they're first starting to use it, maybe picking one app that you feel okay with them using and then making sure you have full access and review their activity on that maybe once a day with them um, and going along with your child and looking at how they're interacting with people on that, their friend requests, their private messages, all of it, and kind of scaffolding how to interact with how your child should interact with others on social media and what kind of information they're getting and how to review that and how to be careful about what you're sharing for safety reasons. Suzanne Campiche is a social worker at UMMC speaking about how social media can have several mental health risks that would affect young people. Coming up, a lawsuit is dropped that sought to remove In God We Trust from Mississippi car tags. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A national organization is withdrawing a lawsuit in response to Mississippi's new license plate design. The organization, American Atheists, released a statement that celebrated the removal of the phrase in God we trust from the state's basic car tag, a goal they've had since filing a lawsuit on the matter in 2021. Nick Fish is president of American Atheists. He says he speaks for most Americans when he advocates for the separation of church and state. We started this back in 2021, actually, even before we filed the lawsuit. Um, the governor at the time had announced that they were remaking the, the license plates to include the, the new seal um, of, the, of the state, which included in God we trust. Um, we don't think that it's appropriate for uh, the government to force anyone to carry around the government's preferred message, whether that's in God we trust or whether that's something like the you know, New Hampshire motto, live free or die. Um, we don't think that atheists and people who don't believe, who don't trust in God, should be forced to carry that message around on their own private vehicles. And so what we had said to the, the government was, listen, we, we want to make sure that there is an alternative for people who don't want to have that on their license plate, who don't want to carry around that preferred message that they trust in God because they as atheists do not. So all we're asking at the time was 
for a free alternative for people who didn't want to have that on their on their license plate. The government essentially said no. Um, they they even had license plates that didn't have that artwork on there, that didn't have that exclusionary message, um, and they wouldn't make it available to people who had that objection. Now, the Supreme Court has been very clear that if there is a alternative that is essentially, you know, doesn't costing anything on part of the government, um, if there's an alternative for people who have a sincerely held objection, like our plaintiffs did, to make an accommodation for them, and the government refused to do that. Now, what happened just this month is that the government has decided that they're going to uh, issue a new plate in 2024 that doesn't have that, that message on there, which we think is great news. And so essentially having gotten everything we want and, you know, having it for everybody, um, <laughs> we think that this is a great win. Um, and so we're, we're withdrawing the, uh, the appeal that we had filed uh, from, the, the original, uh, from the original case. In the press release, there was something really fascinating about how the statement, in God we trust, has a little bit of an oppressive history. Can you kind of educate us yeah. on that? Yeah. You know, people think, number one, they, they have this misconception that it dated since the founding, that this is, you know, the founding fathers put it there and so we should leave it alone. Well, no, that's, it's simply not the case. Um, this wasn't really a motto that was in use until around the time of the Civil War. Um, and it was from its roots uh, set out as a way of excluding people uh, who you know either didn't believe in God or in, in the case of um, in, the, in the explicit case here it was uh, excluding the, the Confederates uh, where they were saying that this war that we were fighting between the, the North and the South was a sign that we were drifting further away from God and so someone wrote a letter to the Treasury Department saying that we needed to put in God we trust in all of our currency to uh, relieve the United States from the ignominy of heathenism, <laughs> which is a heck of a phrase. Uh, and so, you know, it, uh, it doesn't have this deep root uh, to anything. And in fact, was from the outset uh, designed as a way of sort of blaming non-religious non people for society's ills, which is often what we see now, where people like Governor Reeves will go on TV and in, uh, in, in commercials for their reelection will say that Mississippi values require that we, you know, acknowledge God all the time. Well, the facts, Governor, is that a huge percentage of Mississippians, just like all over the country, just like every, in every community throughout the, uh, the, the country, there are atheists, there are non-religious people, there are people of different faiths who don't believe in the same God. Um, and this phrase ex excludes them. And we don't think it's uh, appropriate to continue that exclusionary message. That's a good segue into something else I wanted to ask you about. Of course, you are with an atheism organization, but there's also people in Mississippi and across the South and across the Bible Belt in general that don't believe in the general Christian interpretation of God. Why is this a victory for them as well? Well, all of these um, attempts to insert, you know, they'll say God, but what they really mean is, is a very narrow definition of a Christian conservative uh, uh, version of religion. Um, when, they, when they talk about how, you know, one we're one nation under God, in quotes, what, the, what they mean is they want a Christian nation. And we have to push back on this usurpation of religious freedom, this, this incredible perversion of the term religious freedom to mean the right to impose your to impose a, a, a particular faith on people. We don't think that that's appropriate in this day and age. And we're seeing it, unfortunately, in states all over the country, um, in state legislatures where they're requiring that in God we trust be put in public schools. They're requiring um, that the Ten Commandments be hung in schools. Um, this is a bill that just failed in Texas the other day where they were they passed uh, multiple committees in the in the state legislature where they wanted to hang the Ten Commandments in every public school classroom, saying that that would be the thing that fixes school violence or the thing that would solve school shootings. Um, it's, it's almost always used as, as an excuse to 
uh, avoid actually taking any steps to improve people's lives. It's in, and I think people are starting to see through it. Um, and even Christians are looking at this and saying, you know, this doesn't represent my faith. Using the force of government to push my faith on other people, that's, that's not what Christianity means to me. And so we have really great allies who are Christians, who are members of other faiths and atheists and humanists and just people who are generally non-religious, all siding with us and not wanting the government picking and choosing winners and losers when it comes to matters of religion. Nick Fish is with the American Atheist, an organization that advocates for separation of church and state. Coming up, the Barksdale Reading Institute will soon end 20 years of service, helping students improve reading scores. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. An organization that has helped Mississippi students learn to read for more than 20 years is sunsetting next month. The Barksdale Reading Institute began in 2000, the year 2000, as a way to improve public education throughout the state. In that time, reading scores in Mississippi have risen dramatically, and the organization has worked with many states to help them reshape education policy. CEO Kelly Butler says their main operations will end soon, but programs will continue. We are sunsetting, and the organization... um will not um, still be um, operational, but we have a number of projects that we have been working on over the 20 years and in partnership with a number of other organizations. And so many of those organizations will pick up some of the work that we've been doing. Uh, One of the centerpieces of the Barksdale Reading Institute's work over the 20 years has been in K-3 teacher um, training and doing work also with teacher preparation programs. And those are two big pieces that will continue to to carry on. Um, We have partnered with the Hunt Institute in North Carolina uh, around teacher preparation work. They have picked up a multi-state initiative that we launched back in 2017 um, to bring state teams together uh, to make sure the science of reading is embedded in teacher preparation content um, and delivery. And we are now in our second cohort, so we're working with 12 other states um, around teacher preparation, and that work will carry on thanks to the Hunt Institute, who's taken that up. Um, The K-3 work will live on um, in something called Reading Universe, which will be a free um, web-based service um, that our partners in PDF and WTA in Washington will pick up. This is um, a web-based service that will um, house much of the educational materials that we have produced and delivered over time and to carry that forward. Uh, it will be a free service to teachers. We launch in July with a prototype for kindergarten through first grade teachers And then um, ultimately, it will be a pre-K through sixth grade teacher site to help teachers understand how you teach reading effectively. 
How would you define the Barksdale Reading Institute in a few words? The Institute was founded in 2000, when this, which was the same year that the National Reading Panel report was published. And that was really the federal work that brought together all of the um, research around the science of reading. And so I would say that we, we really became the engine for the science of reading early on, um, well before the Literacy-Based Promotion Act occurred. And so we have been working um, uh, on the ground to try to improve how reading instruction was delivered. Um, that's been our primary focus. Um, and we have uh, felt like when we reached the national average on NAEP um, in 2019 that we had really met a metric that we had set out to accomplish. I understand that this organization was established by a $100 million commitment from Jim Barksdale and his late wife, Sally. Tell us a little bit about how it got off the ground. Well, Jim and Sally were interested in returning to their home state of Mississippi, where they had been, um, uh, where they were both from, and were interested in focusing and making a contribution that would make a big impact. And they visited with the state superintendent then, Richard Thompson, um, who was interested in trying to improve literacy instruction. Um, and so it quickly became the focus of, of the investment. And Jim had, um, has made a really more than $100 million investment in the state uh, through other projects also devoted to literacy. The Mississippi Children's Museum, for example, um, is another um, philanthropic investment he's made, which has a literacy focus. Was this his decision? He and Sally together, yes, I think um, made that decision with with some input from the state superintendent at the time who recognized that this was a way to make the biggest impact. Because now the Department of Education has coaches and also professional development for the teachers to help them to ensure that children are getting what they need to be where they need to be by third grade. That's correct. The Literacy-Based Promotion Act, thanks to the generosity and uh, commitment of the legislature, really helped scale the Rocksdale model, which introduced coaching and professional development at the K-3 level. Um, and that's, um, they are a well-oiled machine now and have trained um, a highly effective cadre of coaches that work across the state in schools. So what do you mean by sunsetting? It's a bittersweet time. We're kind of reluctant to, after all these years, and have the work that we've done shoulder to shoulder with many others in the state. But Jim made the, the uh, conscious decision that, that we should, at some point, pass the baton and let others take up this work. And I think he's made a serious investment that has accomplished a lot and well-positioned other organizations to pick up the work, as I mentioned earlier. And so it's bittersweet in that we won't have a Barksdale flag flying anymore. Uh, but the work will continue. We are also trying to get off the ground a reading statewide reading clinic um, that will not be a Barksdale-supported uh, effort, but the legislature has given us a half a million dollars to create a pilot that we will launch next year um, and continue to do some of the work that Barksdale did from the very beginning, which is to work directly in schools with students and teachers. Actually, what changes then? I guess we will be operating through these other channels. Um, the, there, 
there won't be a Barksdale Reading Institute officially, and yet the work that we've done over these years will carry on through the work of these other partners. What do you think is the greatest contribution the Barksdale Reading Institute was able to make to learning in the state? I think the Barksdale Reading Institute really lifted up the importance of early literacy. Jim always said, keep the main thing, the main thing, and that was third grade reading. We know that if kids are reading on grade level at that juncture, that they will be far more successful in school for the rest of their time. Um, And so I do believe that we were serious about um, determining the effective way to teach reading in the early grades and um, really put a model together that other states are now emulating. Kelly Butler, CEO of Barksdale Reading Institute, which is sunsetting in June of this year. We appreciate your time in speaking with us. Thank you, Desiree, and appreciate your interest in the work we've been doing. Wonderful that Mississippi students are doing better with reading scores. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.